0: Hello and welcome to the Primary Care Respiratory Society podcast series. I'm Catherine Hickman, Executive Chair of PCRS. Each podcast you will hear insightful topics, interviews, experiences and conversations around a plethora of respiratory themes, as well as actionable tips and strategies for you to use in your day-to-day practices. Thank you for joining us and we hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: Welcome to this PCRs podcast. I'm Steve Holmes. I'm a general practitioner in Somerset and part of the PCRs Executive Committee at the moment. And this podcast is going to be looking at air travel for passengers with respiratory disease and will be primarily based on a little bit of work, a clinical statement that was produced by the British Thoracic Society. Now, it's a great pleasure today to have the lead author in this piece of work, Rabina Coker, who works from Imperial College NHS Healthcare Trust. Rabina, can you just introduce yourself and give me a bit of background about your interest in uh, air travel?
0: Yes, thank you very much, Steve. And um, it's a real pleasure to join you on this podcast. So I'm a consultant respiratory physician, primarily working at the Hammersmith Hospital, which is part of Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust, as you said But my interest in air travel and lung disease goes back to 1997, when I was a registrar. And um, myself and Martin Partridge did a survey, a nationwide survey of respiratory physicians um, around air travel and lung disease. And it became very clear there was no consensus about the sort of advice that physicians should be giving their passengers. And that was because there was really very little evidence to back up any guidance. And it was very clear as well that many respiratory physicians would welcome some formal advice. And the British Thoracic Society then invited me to set up and chair uh, a BTS air travel working party, which was set up in 2000. And we produced the first guidelines in 2002. And they were really the first guidelines worldwide to address quite a wide range of respiratory conditions. So before that, there'd been some North American recommendations for patients with asthma and COPD, but nothing looking at other respiratory conditions. And so these were completely new and they were very well received. And we then updated them with a web-based update in 2004. And then there was quite a gap. There was quite a lot of work done in the interim, because one of the things we'd done was we'd been very clear about the lack of evidence. And we'd said, look, this is a consensus statement. That was in the 2002 guidelines, recommendations, really, not guidelines. And we suggest that these are the following research questions that should be addressed. So a number of groups went away and and did some of the research. So we produced some new recommendations in 2011. And again, um, they've been widely welcomed and and quoted and used and applied. But it became clear around 2016, 17, 18, um, that the number of other developments had taken place. So there'd been some more research that had demonstrated quite clearly that a number of respiratory conditions behave differently um, to asthma and COPD. So patients with pulmonary fibrosis, for instance, or patients with musculoskeletal disease. and So that was one thing. And another thing was that there'd been quite a lot of research to try and determine more precisely the role of hypoxic challenge testing and how essential that really was and how useful it was. Because as we may discuss later, it's quite time and staff uh, intense and and in terms of resources. So it's, it's quite a difficult test to do in the NHS. And then the other thing that's developed in leaps and bounds since 2011 is the whole equipment Uh, Range of equipment that's available, so it is now standard to have portable oxygen concentrators, and there are a number of portable oxygen concentrators that are approved by the airlines for use um, during flight. And that was completely new since 2011; we didn't even envisage that then. So we felt actually there was a need for some to review the 2011 uh, recommendations, and so the BTS invited me to set up another group, a, a clinical statement group, so that we could produce a clinical statement.
1: And that was how it all happened. <laughs> and I seem to remember we set off with all good intentions and then this little virus came along and nobody was flying for quite a while and it sort of got delayed a bit. But the result came out in the end, so really well done for that. And I think probably what's worthwhile is just running through some of the key areas that are relevant to people working out in the community and how we can apply that in our clinical practice. I think the first thing is it's people are flying all the time now, all sorts of ages Short flights, long flights, it's so much more accessible. And we hear about medical incidents on flights and we perhaps get involved in the odd one. But but how common actually is it?
0: Yes, so they're not actually that common. Um, So the figures that are quoted are around one in 600 flights or one in 30,000 passengers. And around 12% of those are respiratory But it can be quite difficult, as you can imagine, for airline crew to manage a respiratory incident on an aircraft. And they are particularly, airlines are particularly concerned to try and avoid diversions if they can, because they're extremely expensive. But they also carry safety risks because a pilot may have to land a plane at an airport where he or she has never landed a plane before, or they may have to do it in the dark at night when they had been scheduled to to fly in and land in in full sunlight and so on. So people don't like aircraft diversions. They try and avoid them if at all possible. Uh, And generally, they would prefer not to have incidents on board as well.
1: Excellent. And I guess one of the First things to think through is we have lots of our patients with asthma with milder lung disease mm. um, or, or who've got over infections and things probably a lot of those with asthma who are out traveling are there any tips that we should ensure that our patients get if they discuss that with us for the, for the normally healthy person with
0: asthma yeah absolutely and most people with mild uh, or moderate well-controlled asthma aren't going to have any problems um, I mean the key thing is is to travel with your inhalers in your hand luggage and any other medication that you you might require um, because we all hear these stories of, of luggage going astray it can happen uh, and what you don't want to find is that not only were you unable to use your inhaler on the flight but when you land you're not reunited with your suitcase and you can't you can't get access to an inhaler so inhalers have to be taken on hand luggage that's really important and The other thing is to think about any rescue medication that you normally have available at home in case of an infection or an exacerbation. So do you have a course of prednisolone or steroid tablets or a course of antibiotics? Um, And if you do and you're going away for a little while, it's probably a good idea to take your rescue pack with you. And so I think those are two key things, not drinking, drinking too much alcohol, keeping well hydrated, keeping as mobile as possible. Those are all sensible things to do.
1: And, and I think that probably fits into that discussion about a lot of people who are more senior being more at risk of DVT on these long hauls and the alcohol, the, the keeping your fluid levels up. And perhaps the, the other thing is walking about the cabins and things and keeping keeping your legs moving is a, is a good yes.
0: thing. Yes, yes. Provided you're well enough to do that and you can do that without upsetting the air hostesses or the meal trolley, then that's fine.
1: Right. Let, let's move on to the people who've got perhaps more severe disease, and I'm I'm thinking about Peru here because you sort of fly off in a in a normal flight and sometimes land in a place even at a higher altitude than the pressure in the cabin, um, and then you want to go off deep sea diving or caving. I, I guess it's any any thoughts on how we assess when someone says, "Am I okay to go fly over to?" Australia or Peru or wherever it might be?
0: Yeah. Well, I guess, that I mean, the first thing is just to think about simple things like the MRC dyspnea score, how breathless the patient is. So if the breath, if the patient really can't walk 100 metres without stopping or gets very breathless after 100 metres, then I think one one does need to think about whether they need a little bit more uh, in terms of clinical assessment. And um, anybody, of course, who already has low oxygen levels is hypoxic at sea level. Um, because if they're already hypoxic at sea level, then they're certainly going to be quite a lot more hypoxic at high altitude and they may run into problems yeah
1: and and those those are the sort of people that we probably need to be thinking about quite carefully from a primary care setting of just saying, yes, you'll be fine.
0: Yes, yes I think that's right
1: and and probably worthwhile just thinking through what sort of people do you think that we should be referring on to yourselves and other specialist colleagues in this sort of scenario?
0: I mean, I think the really obvious ones are the ones who are very breathless, the ones who are requiring oxygen or other equipment like CPAP, for instance, or NIV. Anybody who's got active infection And and obviously, you know that uh, anybody with active infectious TB cannot travel um, by air. Um, So that's an absolute contraindication. Anybody who's immunosuppressed for any reason, not necessarily respiratory patients, but anybody who's, for instance, having chemotherapy, they're going to be at at, at quite high risk. Um, Anybody who's been in hospital in the last six weeks for Um, a respiratory problem or with an exacerbation so anybody who's had an effective exacerbation or community acquired pneumonia or um, who's been in for instance for a respiratory procedure or someone who's had a pneumothorax or a PE the other the other thing of course is is also a problem if you're flying is is anybody who's um who's got hemopsis
1: and, and I guess teasing some of those out, your patient who's been admitted with a COPD exacerbation, the, the best sort of clinical advice is six weeks or until they're better? Or
0: I think until they're better. Yes. Um, I mean, people do take varying amounts of time to recover. I think people generally underestimate the time it takes to recover from a full blown community acquired pneumonia. Um, I think it probably takes 12 weeks to recover back to baseline. And if you've got somebody who had quite severe COPD to start with, it can take a very long time. And we know those patients often then don't do so well. But even younger patients can find it takes quite a while to bounce back from pneumonia. Pneumonia tends to be overdiagnosed in hospitals because hospital physicians tend to call pneumonia when it's not pneumonia. So many of those patients may just have had an infective exacerbation and they may recover much more quickly but that's where it's quite useful to have had baseline saturations in the surgery etc in the records or um, baseline spirometry so you have some idea are they getting back towards their baseline
1: yeah And, and quite a lot of people certainly save up to go away to visit family or friends and they may have been planning that for eight or nine months before uh, and it can be quite a difficult conversation if you're suddenly saying, well, you've been in hospital. Um, perhaps you ought not to be flying for a bit.
0: Yeah, I think it, it can be a very difficult conversation. Um, I think pointing out some of the complications that can arise if people become ill, um, not only just on the on the flight, but uh, at destination as well. They're not going to enjoy their trip if they're carted off to hospital uh, within a few days of arrival. So I think having those very open discussions can be useful. And the other thing is, of course, they've got to have, they'll have to have insurance to travel. So they should be thinking about that. The other thing is that a doctor's letter to the airline saying, actually, you know, um, Mrs. Mr. or Mrs. Sun has been in hospital and have been advised not to fly, will usually mean that the airline will be sympathetic and will allow them to hold that deposit or whatever they've paid for their ticket against a future trip so i've never come across an airline that wasn't helpful in those circumstances yeah
1: and i I think they seem to i've I've had the same experiences in primary care where they do seem to be wanting to look after people when they know it's a genuine problem not just a convenience cancellation um i think the other thing you you pointed out that's really important is around insurance. And I think asthma and Lung UK used to get involved in helping to support patients, but it can be quite a minefield to get a reasonably priced uh, insurance policy from from the traditional uh, insurers, can't it?
0: It can. And the only thing to do is just to advise people to shop around. Um, The post office do uh, insurance and they do it for older people. Not, Not all our patients are older, but some of them are. Saga do it as well. And as you say, um, there's, there's some advice through the respiratory charities, but it's just a question of, of hunting around and seeing what you can get. Mm.
1: So ideally, with a proper community-acquired pneumonia, you're wanting them to be better, and that's usually about six weeks. With yeah. COPD, it may be six weeks, but it might be a little bit shorter if they're clinically well.
0: It might be longer. And if somebody's really had community-acquired pneumonia, I would argue they need a repeat chest x-ray uh, yeah. because you want to know that that consolidation is clearing and that there isn't anything else going on. Um, six weeks is quite early, but if they're desperate to travel, then you might compromise and say, well, let's get a chest X-ray and see what it looks like and see how you are. Yeah. Um, so you might do it sooner rather than later.
1: Yeah. And, and I think your, your comment about proper pneumonia versus a bronchitis or a mild, uh, you know, a more severe bronchitis is well-made. A couple of other areas, pneumothorax.
0: Yes, so pneumothorax is really interesting, isn't it? So we used to say you can't travel for six weeks, and then we discovered that actually most surgeons will say that you can travel after a couple of weeks. So we now we now say that you have to have a chest X-ray that's demonstrated um, that the air leak has resolved, uh, the lung is fully inflated, and you can travel within seven days, unless it was traumatic, any reason. We know that if you do a CT, you may see small apical blebs or small pockets of air remaining but we use the chest x-ray as the as the standard
1: and so and that's quite a useful thing again is making sure they're fit before they're going out with that the other the other thing that is happening a lot with our patients is and we've talked about keeping mobile to prevent uh, DVT and pulmonary emboli but pulmonary emboli in patients who've been poorly and for some other reason have developed pulmonary emboli what about the the uh, indications there
0: Yes. Well, I mean, if they're, if they're being treated for a PE, they should be all right. Uh, so if you're on treatment, you, you should be OK. If you are somebody who has a particular predisposition um, to venous thromboembolism through hereditary conditions or whatever, similar, then you should be getting hematology advice, um, really. Uh, and it may be that you do need antiembolism stockings and you may need some short-term anticoagulation for the trip. So specialist advice in those situations is, is useful.
1: And surgery, we put in some um, recommendations in the statement around certainly some units saying not for four weeks, but some surgeons being happier earlier. And it clearly depends on the type of intervention that's taken place. But any tips on what what we should be doing evaluation wise with a patient who's had surgery recently Who's saying, right, I'm off to Ibiza next week?
0: Yes. I mean, I think it'd be really helpful to know whether they told the surgeon they were going to travel, how long it is since they were discharged. I think if there's any doubt, you should go back to the person who did the procedure because they know exactly what procedure they did and what the risks are and and they know what they've told the patient if they were consulted at the time. I think a recent chest x-ray is really useful just to make sure there's no pneumothorax and assessment as you would normally, say some oximetry, even just getting them, if you don't, if you're not sure, get them to walk up and down the corridor and see how they manage. Um, if you've got a 10 metre corridor, you can still get them to do 10 up and down and, and see how they get on.
1: And then, and then uh, what I've often done with that is check their pulse oximetry as soon as they get back into the room yes. and
0: that sort of thing. Yes. Yes. Because I think we said in the clinical statement that you can actually end up walking about a kilometre yeah. from the, uh, the the check-in desk to the terminal. And then if you've got luggage as well, you've really got to be quite fit to do that.
1: Yes, I I think we've probably all seen on holidays that quite a few people really struggling to get that sort of distance.
0: Yes, and airlines vary. So some airlines will automatically give anyone over 70 a wheelchair if they ask it, but not all airlines do that. Um, But it is also something that people haven't always considered because they may be getting by at home perfectly well and they may be getting out of the shops, but actually they'd be much better off in those circumstances asking for a wheelchair And having it, and having that little bit of extra assistance.
1: And one of the things that always stuck out in my mind with children, because we see a lot of children going off with their parents on holiday, is the the sort of recommendations on otitis media. And ideally, there, if someone's had an acute otitis media, not to fly for two weeks. But again, a a lot of children, I'm sure, do. And I think what you're trying to do in that situation is reduce barrow trauma and make sure that. At least the child's sucking plenty of sweets and, and has been adequately managed with that. Yes. But it can make for a painful uh, experience if the child is in pain when they're coming down.
0: No, it can be very painful, and you want to try and avoid it if at all possible. And if they're very young, it's quite tricky, but you've just got to get them to suck on something. Yes. Yeah. Whatever
1: that is. I think the other thing I learnt from being a parent and also the observation is they also cry a lot and the crying makes them swallow more which is effectively like sucking it's a bit more noisy than i prefer them to suck it's a bit quieter but uh, at least they are swallowing more when they're doing that which is easy or equalizing the pressure okay there's a few patients and let's just talk about hypoxic challenge testing there's a few people who we're worried about in primary care and send to you guys and your Perhaps not quite. You know, a lot of times you will be confident and say, "No, this is fine," or "No, this definitely won't work." But there's hypoxic challenge testing is talked about quite a bit still.
0: Mm. Yes, and we've one of the aims of the clinical statement was actually to narrow down the group of patients who should need hypoxic challenge testing, and because even in 2018, it was very clear that this was. It it isn't the gold standard test that we all think it is. It's useful, but it isn't um, totally reliable. And it is quite resource intensive. But there are a group of patients in whom it can be very helpful. So what we do is obviously all of us at the moment, um, if we're at sea level, we're breathing 21% oxygen. What you're doing in a hypoxic challenge is getting the patient to to breathe 15% oxygen for 20 minutes. And that more or less equates to what you will the partial pressure of oxygen at 8,000 feet which is the cabin pressure that is the cabin pressure that aircraft are legally required to pressurize to there are some airline aircraft that are pressurized to a lower pressure but that's that's the maximum and at that point what we do is we measure capillary blood gas and saturations and if the saturations remain 85 percent or above and the the capillary, the PO2 is at 6.6 or above. We say they don't need oxygen to fly. Um, But if it falls below that, then we do recommend in-flight oxygen. And the usual practice is to then titrate the patient back up to satisfactory oxygen saturations with an appropriate oxygen flow, typically one to two litres per minute. And that's that's what we, we advise. Now, that is why the test takes quite a long time to do, because you have to do the test initially, and then you have to titrate with oxygen. So it can take about 45 minutes in total um, to complete that test. Um, The other reason for doing the titration is, of course, that some patients develop hypercapnia when they're given supplemental oxygen. Now, generally at altitude, it's not such a problem because they tend to hyperventilate slightly, so they tend to blow off a bit more CO2 but nevertheless a lot of respiratory physiologists are quite cautious so they prefer to actually make sure that there is no hypercapnia when they give supplemental oxygen
1: brilliant that i think we've galloped through an awful lot of information it might be just worthwhile reinforcing a couple of the things around people who are travelling with normal lung disease and again just thinking through about make sure they're taking their inhalers with them make sure they've got their short-acting bronchodilator and a spacer device if that's what they normally use with them it's not really an issue with customs I think they are familiar with that I think you've emphasized really nicely about the importance of insurance for these patients no matter the severity of their illness and given us some good tips and guidance on where to take things through Probably ought to put in a plug to the BTS and the clinical statement, but it is freely available on the British Thoracic Society website. So I recommend people go to read that and have a look at it. And it's got quite a bit more detail in if you if some of these concepts we've spoken about sort of ring a bell and you want to know a bit more specifically about particular patients. But I think from my perspective as a primary care clinician, we want experts like Rabina to be there to help us when we get a little bit stuck and we should use our specialist colleagues in that sort of environment. Rabina, thank you so much for your time and your expertise today. I hope you've enjoyed being part of the PCRs podcast system.
0: I've enjoyed it very much, Steve. Thank you very much for inviting me. That's brilliant. It's been a pleasure.
1: Anyone listening? please feel free to search out other PCRs podcasts and get a brief update on what's going on in other topics. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you for listening. If you know somebody that may be interested in this podcast that is yet to become a member of PCRs, please direct them to the PCRs website and take the first step to inspiring more respiratory leaders.